0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Libby, and I'll be reading today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, January 26th, 2024. The weather outlook for the next few days is not great. Today we have highs in the mid-40s with clouds and fog with rain and drizzle. The drizzle will taper off later, but it will still be very foggy tonight. Saturday, more clouds with fog, highs in the 40s. Sunday and Monday, more rain, and Monday it might even snow as highs will only be in the low 30s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's numbers game, the midday drawing numbers were 5, 4, 8, and 1. The evening drawing numbers were 1, 3, 5, and 9. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 5, 14, 17, 18, and 25. For Wednesday, the Powerball drawing numbers were 1, 5, 32, 50, 64, and the extra ball of 8. And finally, for the Mega Millions drawing on Tuesday, we have numbers 21, 28, 58, 69, 70, and the extra ball of 20. The main local story on page 1 of today's paper is headlined Blue and White Marble. Astronaut O'Hara greets Cape Cod from International Space Station. By George Costinas, special to the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Woods Hole. Laurel O'Hara's image suddenly appeared on the big projection screen, standing and floating in the International Space Station, with her long curly hair waving and swirling above her head in zero gravity, looking like a smiling, happy Medusa. O'Hara was the main attraction at a From Ocean to Outer Space presentation at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution on Tuesday. A former Huey research engineer who worked on the underwater vehicle Alvin and who is now a NASA astronaut aboard the space station as a flight engineer, O'Hara answered questions from students and teachers from local schools and from others as far away as Illinois and California. About 300 people, children, and adults watched and listened to O'Hara from seats at the Marine Biological Laboratory's CLAP Auditorium. In addition, 1,550 people signed on for the live webinar presentation, said Rachel Mann, Public Relations Specialist at HUI. Prior to O'Hara's question-and-answer session were presentations by Bruce Strickrott, the institution's Alvin Program Manager and Julie Huber, marine microbiologist, who described underwater research and its similarity to space exploration. Unexpected Life Forms in Unexpected Places Aside from the similarities of being confined in a life-supporting vessel for expended periods of time and traveling to the darkest places on Earth and in the universe, both Strickrott and Huber spoke about how unexpected life forms have been and may yet be found in unexpected places. Strickrot has made more than 400 dives as Alvin's pilot. With no physical contact with the surface, just as a spacecraft has no physical contact with Earth, Alvin requires its own life support systems, he said. Traveling as deep as 21,325 feet, or four miles, the submarine and its crew are down there alone. A big difference, Strickrock noted, was external pressure, which on the submarine is 644 atmospheres, whereas in space it is just one. However, as in space, he said there was not much of a physical effect on the well-being of the human body. Strickrock said venturing to such depths is thrilling in seeing and learning new things about the planet every time he makes a dive. Can life be somewhere else? Huber, in turn, spoke of finding life forms in the deepest part of the ocean where there is no sunlight, which scientists previously believed did not exist. She discovered underwater volcanoes that produce chemical energy and heat up to 400 degrees Celsius for vent fluid and 800 to 1,200 degrees Celsius for molten lava. That energy is able to sustain life in various plants and microorganisms in a place where there is no sunlight. If life can be discovered in the deep dark ocean, can it be somewhere else? She asked. Similar conditions, Huber noted, exist in space, particularly on Saturn's moon, Enceladus, where she showed photographs of geysers spouting liquid substances containing methane and hydrogen, among other gases and minerals. She said these are detections, not exactly of actual life, but of signatures of life. While it's very complicated, Scientists have formulated a model, a ladder of life detection, which is a continuum of criteria that would support discussions about how one would detect life beyond Earth. She hopes that someday life beyond our planet would be definitively discovered. O'Hara, water behaves strangely with no gravity. That set up the main event, and O'Hara did not disappoint. Most questions from students involved what it's like to live in space. One student asked where the water from the toilets go in outer space. O'Hara explained water is not used because it behaves strangely when there's no gravity. And then she gave a demonstration, producing some water from a bottle that formed a semi-solid sort of bubble like mercury does when released from a thermometer. Then she asked what she should do with the water floating in front of her face, whereupon she sucked it into her mouth, eliciting laughter from the audience. The answer to the question, by the way, is that in space, airflows are used to dispense with toilet waste, but the liquid waste is recycled to make juices and coffee. Another student asked about sleeping arrangements. O'Hara said some people have difficulty sleeping in space, because the space station moves so fast it passes the sun several times in what on Earth may be considered a day. So some people become confused about night and day, and their rhythms get thrown off. But she said she sleeps just fine. She gets into her sleeping bag and just stretches out and floats. Food, of course, is different with a lot of freeze-dried meals and liquid soups and pouches. And one of the things she said she missed about being in space was being able to snack on guacamole and chips. She also said she missed going outside, especially now in the winter, to see the snow. Someone asked her what time it was, as well as the space station's location. The time for her, she said, was 9.28 p.m., about 4.20 p.m. here on Earth, and she was traveling over the coast of Mexico in Baja, California. Frequent trips over Cape Cod. Interestingly, the International Space Station can be seen almost every day from Earth and travels frequently over Cape Cod. O'Hara said that working on Alvin when she was at Huey was great training for being in space, as many of the pre-mission preparations are the same. You try to think of all the problems you could have and anticipate, but once you get out there, nothing ever goes perfectly according to plan, so you have to adapt and use the resources you have aboard your ship or on the space station to fix things when they break, she said. You have to be a good teammate. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to take care of yourself, and things are really hard. And she talked about the desire to explore and do meaningful work to be a part of something bigger than herself. Seeing the Earth from space has definitely just increased this deep sense of awe I have at the beauty and the complexity and the diversity of life on our planet. It also deepens the connection I have with the planet. Seeing Earth as this blue and white marble against this backdrop of space actually makes Earth seem really small, and it really starts to become clear how much we have in common and how much humanity shares, more so than our differences, O'Hara said. The 30 minutes allotted to her by NASA ended, and, as the audience called out a rousing thank you, O'Hara floatingly flipped herself upside down, hair still swirling about, now below her head, and waved goodbye with a big smile on her face. Stormy conditions possible for Cape Cod this weekend by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. A bumpy patch of weather is lurking in the Cape Cod weekend forecast that could lead to tricky driving conditions during the Monday morning commute. According to the National Weather Service forecast discussion for our region, a potential coastal storm should bring rain, snow, or ice late Saturday night into early Monday, but amounts are uncertain. On the Cape, precipitation is likely to begin as rain around the middle of the day on Sunday. Eventually, colder air is drawn southward and causes rain to change to snow, sometimes Sunday night and early Monday morning, from north to south, even down to Cape Cod and the islands, reports the forecast discussion. Rob. Magnia, meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Boston, Norton office, said a few inches of snow would likely be the worst-case scenario for Cape Cod. It doesn't look like a blockbuster, said Magnia. The storm could produce sloppy and slippery road conditions on Monday morning as the work week begins. Lousy road conditions might be more of a concern than deep snow on Cape Cod, said Magnia. Wind gusts on the Cape could top 40 miles per hour on Sunday night and Monday, according to the forecast. Looking ahead at the weather scene for the first week of February, Megnia pointed the way to just released information from the Climate Prediction Center, which shows temperatures are likely to be above normal on Cape Cod for the time frame. Precipitation amounts during the first week of February are leaning toward below normal, according to the Climate Prediction Center. This is likely good news for those with an aversion to snow. But for Cape Codders yearning to break out the cross-country skis and sleds, it's a bit of a bummer, as the white stuff has been in short supply this winter. Doc Taylor, retired meteorologist and noted Falmouth weather observer, has measured a total of 3.9 inches of snow this winter, a situation he labeled as sad in an email to the Cape Cod Times. Last winter at this time, even less snow had fallen, with a total of 2.8 inches, according to Taylor. Here is the Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Center. On Friday, rain, mainly before noon. High near 43, with east winds 5 to 8 mph becoming light and variable. Chances of precipitation are 80%. New precipitation amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch possible. Friday night, a slight chance of rain before 7 p.m., Then a slight chance of rain after eight PM. Mostly cloudy with a low around thirty five. North wind around eight miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is twenty percent. Saturday cloudy with a high near forty one and north winds up to nine miles per hour. Saturday night, a slight chance of rain after four AM. Mostly cloudy with a low around thirty three and a north wind around six miles per hour, becoming west after midnight. Chance of precipitation is twenty percent. Sunday, rain is likely mainly after 2 o'clock. It'll be cloudy with a high near 40 and northeast winds 6 to 13 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 70%. Sunday night, there will be rain before 3 a.m. and then snow likely, with lows around 27. Windy with a northeast wind 18 to 23 miles per hour, increasing up to 30 miles per hour after midnight. Winds could gust as high as 43 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is eighty per cent, and on Monday snow is likely mainly before noon it'll be cloudy with a high near thirty four and windy with northeast winds around thirty one miles per hour with gusts as high as forty five Chance of precipitation is sixty per cent Key findings in Cape Cod Regional Housing Draft Plan by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. Get your comments in. The Cape Cod Commission wants feedback on a draft of its regional housing strategy. Comments should be sent to housing at capecodcommission.org by Monday. The 97-page draft document is available on the Commission's website and aims to take on the decades-long challenge of providing affordable and diverse housing choices for year-round residents. The Regional Policy Plan is a balanced plan, and it articulates the vision for the future of Cape Cod. A region of vibrant, sustainable, and healthy communities and protected natural and cultural resources. Cape Cod Commission Executive Director Christy Senatori said in an interview Specific recommendations outlined in the plan. The draft plan will provide dozens of different strategies for towns, nonprofit organizations, developers, and others to employ that can help alleviate the housing crisis on Cape Cod, said Senatori. Some will be more applicable on a town-by-town basis, while others apply more regionally, she said. One recommendation she highlighted urges Cape communities to change zoning to allow for multifamily housing and more diverse housing types by right in appropriate locations. Another Cape-wide recommendation she highlighted is that a community land trust and regional housing land bank should be developed with an intent to move swiftly on opportunities to acquire property for affordable or attainable housing. Recommendations have been shared and reviewed with staff from all 15 towns, said Sen. adding the Commission looks forward to working with the communities to implement some of these recommendations. After the Monday deadline, the Cape Cod Commission will review and incorporate comments into the housing strategy, and will also continue to work with all towns and regional stakeholders to apply the plan. The housing strategy is critical now because the time to act is now, said Senatori. Housing profile created for each community. Key findings. When they first set out to develop the regional strategy, commission staff created housing profiles for each Cape community and for Barnstable County. The profile contains demographic information, such as year-round population and age breakdown, economic data on wages and employment, and other data, such as cost of housing, types of homes throughout the Cape, and how homes are used. Key findings listed include 80% of residential properties are single-family homes. Sales prices have skyrocketed at a rate that far exceeds income from 2019 to 2022, and a household must earn $210,000 annually to be able to affordably purchase a median-priced single-family home. Cape Cod gas prices higher than mainland, in latest survey, by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. State gas prices fell for the second consecutive week and reached an average of $3.07 per gallon of regular fuel on Monday, down from last week's price of $3.08 per gallon. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the average fuel price in the state has fallen about 10 cents since last month. According to the EIA, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as 307 on January 22nd and as high as 376 on August 7th, 2023. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 8% higher at $3.35 a gallon. Prices ranged from two hundred eighty three per gallon for regular gas at Bay Village Auto on Main Street and Buzzards Bay, and at several other stations on Main Street and the Scenic Highway, according to Gas Buddy. Once drivers crossed the Bourne Bridge to the Cape to the mobile station on MacArthur Boulevard, the price rose to three hundred nineteen per gallon, an eight cents increase from last week. In Sandwich, about eight miles from the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges, Prices rose to 3.09 and 3.29 per gallon at the Shell and Gulf stations, respectively. Orleans prices ran 3.39 per gallon at three different gas stations about 43 miles east of Bourne, and Provincetown, at the very tip of the Cape, some 67 miles out, had prices at $3.39 per gallon, a 10-cent decrease from last week. Hyanna's prices were comparable to Bourne's. The so called hub of the Cape, a twenty mile ride from the bridges, had prices ranging from two hundred eighty four per gallon for members at BJ's to three hundred five per gallon at a mobile station on Iano Road. Two Cumberland Farm locations offered gas at two hundred eighty five and two hundred eighty nine per gallon. The gas station information and gas prices on GasBuddy Buddy are, are primarily entered by drivers. The crowdsourced information for specific gas stations can be current or days old. And in this section, there is a picture of an excavator tearing down a building, and the caption reads, An excavator operator takes a bite into the former Hearth and Kettle restaurant on Wednesday in Orleans. The restaurant closed in 2016. Chase Bank was approved by the Orleans Architectural Review Committee in April to demolish the building and rebuild on the site, according to meeting minutes. CVS proposed to move into the former restaurant, but officials withdrew the application when the town committee objected to a proposed drive-thru. Starbucks was also eyeing the space for a new coffee shop. Healy's budget plan has a 3.7 percent spending increase by Kinga Barandi of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Dateline, Boston. Fiscal challenges centered around slower-than-anticipated growth in tax revenue that forced budget cuts earlier this month were reflected in the new spending document for the coming fiscal year, filed Wednesday by Governor Maura T. Healy. The governor proposes total spending of $58.1 billion for the fiscal year, which starts July 1st, and an increase of $2.1 billion, or 3.7%, from her proposal for the current fiscal year, including an expected $1.3 billion from the so-called Millionaire's Tax, which was approved by voters in 2022. In presenting the spending document, Healy called the budget proposal balanced, responsible, and forward-looking, protecting taxpayer dollars, while also making crucial investments to lower costs for people and improve quality of life. There will be some tightening of belts, Healy said at an afternoon press conference. The economy remains strong, but the revenue picture has changed, she said, noting that pandemic-era funding from the federal government has dried up, while the overall economy has recovered. Healy said the state was living within available resources. However, she did not specify which line items were being trimmed or programs flat-funded. Beyond pointing to the $16 million in savings the state expects to realize from the proposed closure of MCI Concord and the possible repurposing of the structures on the campus of the state's oldest prison. The administration, Healy said, has made smart choices, strategic choices, strategic investments to ensure the impact of every dollar spent stretches as far as it can go, to be smart in spending decisions, to deliver a transformative impact and to protect the advances and changes already underway. Who is critical of proposed spending plan? House Minority Leader Bradley Jones, a Republican from North Andover, issued a release criticizing the spending document. Governor Healy has filed a fiscal year 2025 budget that calls for significantly increased spending across state government, But those aspirations need to be tempered by the fiscal realities facing the Commonwealth, said Jones. After six-plus months of tax revenues coming in lower than expected, Governor Healy has already implemented hundreds of millions of dollars in mid-year cuts and downgraded projected revenues by $1 billion for fiscal year 2024. He was critical of the increasing amounts of state spending on the migrant crisis that he said continues to drain much-needed revenues that would otherwise have been spent on other programs and services with no end in sight. The governor's plan to use the $863 million from the Transitional Escrow Fund, detailed several times in the last few months, would drain the fund and leave a $91 million shortfall. The members of the Republican caucus look forward to reading through the governor's budget, participating in the hearing process, and learning more about her specific spending plans to ensure that the interests of the state's taxpayers are protected, Jones said. Senate Minority Leader Bruce Tarr, a Republican from Gloucester, also was critical of the spending proposal, pointing to the gathering fiscal storm clouds swirling above our state. He believes the state faces a turbulent economic future that demands spending restraint, protecting reserve accounts, and vigorously pursuing reforms to ensure fiscal stability. Budget proposal echoes State of Commonwealth speech. Overall the budget continues investments and programs launched during Healey's first year in office. Programs designed to address the housing crisis, climate change, and transportation challenges throughout the state. It supports investments in education and child care from birth through adulthood, while also supporting the state's veterans and creating a disaster relief fund to help communities hard hit by natural and man-made crisis. The proposed budget pays for the tax relief package signed into law last year that was designed to put more money into the pockets of low- and middle-income earners. That relief package increases the dependent and child tax credit while also eliminating the two-dependent cap, increases rental deductions, doubles the senior circuit breaker, and also allows deductions for commuting costs using public transportation. The spending document strengthens the state-municipal partnership, supporting full Chapter 90 funding and directs a portion of fair share tax collections, estimated at $1.3 billion, into municipal infrastructure projects. The state will use 55% of the fair share tax revenue, also called the millionaire's tax, to support education, and 45% of the revenue to support transportation, including the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority and regional transit authorities. A big portion of Massachusetts spending is allocated to MassHealth and the 2 million residents that rely on the service for healthcare coverage. With new investments in community-based behavioral health initiatives, Skilled nursing care and even $5 million for wheelchair repairs. Many of the state's health and human service providers will see revisions upwards to their reimbursement rates, while the state proposes $27 million in new investments in services for young people, community based services, and services for at risk people. Child care, education, launch of free pre K first in Gateway Cities. The governor's proposal continues the state's investment in child care, from increases in salaries for providers of child and early childhood educators, invests in education for providers, reimbursing costs and increasing access to affordable child care for many more Massachusetts families. The document also supports the launch of universal pre-K for children throughout the Bay State. Starting with the state's 26 gateway cities, which include Worcester, Fitchburg, and Ledminster. The new Mass Reconnect project, offering tuition-free community college to residents 25 and older who have not earned a prior degree, will see a 4 million dollar increase in its current 20 million dollar budget. The success of the program was made clear, administration officials said, through the increase in enrollment at the state's community college the first in the last 5 years. of the budget spending is dedicated strictly to address climate change and energy issues, funding for the Clean Energy Center and for climate emergency mitigation work that would also create employment opportunities in the field. Spending initiatives, including $140 million for economic development programs and $40 million for workforce development, would help meet the demands of a 21st century economy. Healy embraced the creation of a Disaster Relief and Resiliency Fund through its inclusion in her budget, an idea launched by legislators following the weather-related disasters that hit farmers, businesses, and communities throughout the year. Healy proposes to use revenue from the state's Excess Capital Gains Tax to pay for the Disaster Relief Fund, skimming off 10% of the revenue, which also supports the state's pension system, before funneling the remainder to the Stabilization Fund, Healy has filed legislation that would take interest revenue generated by the $8 billion in the Stabilization or Rainy Day Fund and use it to chase federal money, to support grants and provided matching funds if projects need it to qualify for federal dollars. The budget supports the governor's initiatives in addressing the state's housing crisis including $219 million for the Rental Voucher Program, a 22% increase, $112 million in subsidies for local housing authorities, $197 million for the Residential Assistance for Families in Transition, and $57 million for Homebase, a program designed to connect families with sustainable housing options. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of the broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Barbara Ann Bruin-McGrath, Dateline, Osterville. Barbara Ann Bruin-McGrath, age 94, of Osterville, died Sunday, January 21st. Born on December 4th, 1929 at Boston Lying Inn Hospital, She was the beloved Irish daughter of the late Margaret H. Mahoney and the late Pierce J. Bruin of Winthrop. She had four loving grandparents, Philip J. and his wife Mary L. Hallisey Mahoney and Patrick F. and his wife Margaret M. Ducey Bruin. Barbara is survived by her five children, 11 grandchildren, and one great-grandson. She also leaves five nieces and nephews and their families. Barbara was preceded in death by her sister Patricia and her husband Richard Tesselly of Winthrop. As a young lady, she attended the Chandler Business School in Boston and later worked as a customer service rep at New England Telephone. She married Robert D. McGrath of West Roxbury, and they moved to Dover, where they raised their five children. After raising her children, she went to work at Cognex, She later retired to Osterville, where she stayed active into her 90s and was involved with the Osterville Garden Club, the Altar Guild at Our Lady of the Assumption Church in Osterville, and traveled abroad extensively. She cherished days spent exploring New England with her daughter, Kara. She was surrounded with the love, stories, and embraces of her family during her final moments. A special thanks from the McGrath family to the compassionate doctors, nurses, and staff at Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. Services to be held at a later date. Stephen Cass Jones, Dateline, Palm City. Stephen C. Jones, age 79, of Centerville, died peacefully in his Florida home on January 17th after a long, valiant, and graceful battle with prostate cancer. Born and raised in Barnstable Village, he was the son of the late Alan Francis and Betty White Jones. A leader, athlete, and a scholar, Steve graduated from Barnstable High School in 1963, where he served as class president and captain of the football team. He was the recipient of both the Harvard Book Award and the Student Athlete Award. Steve attended Dartmouth College, where he majored in art history and graduated with honors. He went on to Boston College Law School and became a member of the Law Review. He also served as the president of the Barnstable County Bar Association. Steve married his high school sweetheart, Linda Morin Jones, in 1967. He built a thriving law practice and real estate hotel business while raising three adventurous boys. Their house was always a hub of action, laughter, and mischief. He loved spending time with his kids' friends and was an honorary dad to many. In the early 90s, Steve reinvented himself and moved with Linda to Stowe, Vermont, to begin a new career with Maple Grove Farms, where he was general manager and vice president of marketing. After the sale of Maple Grove to B&G Foods, he played a leading role in building Emerald Lagasse's food brand and enjoyed traveling the country with him to gala events. Steve was a lover of life and a man of many passions. First and foremost was his wife of 57 years, Linda, whom he cherished. He reveled in his son's careers and was immensely proud of the fact that his three boys worked side by side in celebration of snow sports. From the time they were kids, Steve and Linda packed up the station wagon and road tripped to Stowe every winter weekend, where the boys developed the love of skiing and mountain life that has defined the family ever since. He was a gifted oil painter and enjoyed countless hours in his garage studio, creating beautiful coastal and mountain landscapes that are treasured by his family and friends. Wherever Steve was, music was playing, and always the good stuff. Many will always remember the times Steve and his friend rented a big yellow school bus, filled it with adult and teenage parrot heads, and partied all the way from the Cape to Great Woods for Jimmy Buffett concerts. A collector of memories, not toys, Steve wasted no time on the negative, filling his twilight years with things that brought him joy. Golf, boating, cooking, and spending time with his beloved grandchildren. He is survived by his devoted wife, Linda, his sons, and his sisters. A reception will be held at Harbor Ridge Yacht and Country Club in the near future, and a memorial service will be scheduled on Cape Cod in the summer of 2024. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Treasure Coast Hospice of Stewart, Florida. Nancy C. Johnson, Dateline Hudson Nancy Claire Johnson, age 90, of Hudson, passed away peacefully on Friday, January 19th at her home surrounded by her loving family. She was born in Marlborough, the daughter of the late William H. and Rowena O. Fuller-Adams, Nancy graduated from Marlborough High School and worked in the tax collector's office many years ago. Nancy then worked as the president and treasurer of her husband's business, Kobe Incorporated in Marlborough, until their retirement. Nancy was predeceased by her husband of 71 years, G. Herbert Johnson Jr., in May 2023. Nancy is survived by her two daughters, her son, four grandchildren, three great-grandchildren and two sisters she was predeceased by her brother william h adams jr nancy was an avid golfer and played in many tournaments with her husband they were formerly members of the marlborough country club before moving to cape cod in 1994 they were members of the picasset golf club until moving to hudson in 2022 calling hours will be held on sunday january 28 2024 from 2 to 4 p.m. in the Short and Row Funeral Home on West Main Street in Marlboro. Burial will be on Monday, January 29th at 1.45 p.m. in the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made in her name to the Shriners Hospital for Children. For more information and to view an online memorial, please visit the website of Short and Row Funeral Home. Randall Keith Perry. Dateline Hyannis. Randall Keith Perry passed away peacefully in his sleep following a long illness on Monday, January 22nd, just two days shy of his 70th birthday. Randy was born in Des Moines, Iowa, to parents Ruth K. Perry Eccles and Gordon E. Perry. He was preceded in death by both parents and his brother Richard. Randy attended the University of Iowa and then went on to earn a degree at the Florida Institute of Art, where he became a professional photographer. He was also a talented musician and played the organ and directed the choirs at the Unitarian Church in Barnstable and later the United Methodist Church in Osterville for many years. Known for his quick wit and dry sense of humor, he attributed his green thumb in his vegetable gardens to growing up surrounded by cornfields in Iowa. Randy is survived by his son Russell and daughter Laura, four grandchildren, several nieces and one nephew, and his ex wife Catherine Bomar Perry. A celebration of life will be held for family only. For which Coach Wilson inducted into Hall of Fame by Courtney Jacobs of the Cape Cod Times. When Steve Wilson first moved to Cape Cod in 1974, he started off as a school psychologist at Harwich, now Monomoy, schools. One day, the assistant principal at the time, Fred Ebert, more on him later, asked Wilson to help with the varsity baseball team. He was then named the junior varsity coach, a job that ran from 1978 to 2007. In the middle of that job in 1993, he was the varsity head coach for one year. Then, in 2008, Wilson took over as the varsity head coach for the next 11 seasons. The rest is history. On January 27th at the Four Points by Sheraton Hotel in Wakefield, Wilson will be inducted into the Massachusetts Baseball Coaches Association, or the MBCA, Hall of Fame. The MBCA really made me into the best coach that I was because of the clinics they offered. That really set the standard for Massachusetts baseball coaches, Wilson said. Those clinics by some of the best college and high school coaches in the Northeast helped Wilson to a 138-114 to 114 record, a South sectional title in 2020-12, two South semifinals appearances in 2013 and 2015, and eight MIAA tournament appearances— Wilson will become just the third coach from Harwich Monomoy to be inducted into the MBCA Hall of Fame, alongside Ebbett and Fred Thatcher, both of whom he coached with. These two, with another former coach in Charlie Horan, helped Wilson in his coaching career. It means a lot because Ebbett and Thatcher, along with Charlie, were all terrific clinicians, Wilson said. I really had the chance to study under some great guys. Wilson's 45 years of coaching have left a mark on more than just the Harwich High School, but also the Cape Cod Baseball League. This type of recognition is not a first for Wilson. He was inducted into the CCBL Hall of Fame in 2022, with over 30 years of time spent on projects, the website, and he served as the treasurer. It was an honor to be recognized from that group for the contributions in terms of helping to build the CCBL into the premier league in the nation, Wilson said. Former CCBL President Judy Walden Scaraffoli said that Wilson was thrilled and in disbelief when he received the news because of his humility. She assured him that he deserved this honor. He was the definition of integrity, loyalty, and dedication to baseball and his family, but always family first, Walden Scaraffoli said. His impact in the Cape League for 35 years of being the pillar of integrity That's spread out all over Cape Cod because he represented the Cape League so well, and it meant so much to him, and it still does. It's not the 54% winning record or the state title or playoff appearances or even the Hall of Fame inductions that were Wilson's favorite part about baseball. It was the relationships he built over 40 years of baseball. The relationships with the players and the parents and the support from the relationships in school, Wilson said, Hundreds and hundreds I ran across because of baseball. I still treasure it to this day. I go to the mall and I bump into old students, players, and teachers, and it puts a smile on my face. When Wilson walks across that stage this weekend, he will be honored for not only what he did on the field, but also what he did off of it. The statewide recognition is wonderful because he's a great coach, talented, and his players absolutely loved and respected him so much. Walden Scaraffoli said. Parton, Duncan Hines, to offer new products by Emily Deletter of USA Today. Dolly Parton is already known as a Grammy Award winning singer, an actor, philanthropist, and the Dolly behind the theme park Dollywood. But there's another space where the queen of country is continuing to make her mark, retail food. Parton, who has partnered with Duncan Hines since 2022, is launching a new line of food products this year. According to a release, this new line will include frozen, refrigerated, grocery and snack items inspired by down-home comfort cuisine. The new product line, which is set to be on store shelves in the coming days, will include expanded Duncan Hines mixes, including chocolate cake mix, yellow cake mix, cinnamon crumb cake mix, blueberry muffin mix, and banana nut muffin mix. The Dolly Parton-branded buttermilk pancake mix from ConAgra, the parent company of Duncan Hines, can be found on shelves this winter, according to a release, and is her first foray into the breakfast category. The frozen items are expected to launch later this year. Duncan Hines is also offering a limited-edition Dolly Parton Bake Like a Rockstar baking collection, which is available online only while supplies last. The kit can be purchased online at bakingwithdolly.com for $40 plus shipping and handling, and sales began Wednesday afternoon. The kit includes mixes for Dolly Parton's blueberry muffins, cinnamon swirl crumb cake, favorite chocolate cake, and creamy chocolate buttercream frosting, a Dolly Parton magnet, a Dolly Parton-inspired oven mitt, and recipe cards that feature some of her favorite recipes. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined. He's angry his daughter wrote a short story about an absentee dad. Dear Carolyn, My son and I are close, but my brilliant daughter has largely shut me out. She's 30, but I believe still nursing resentment over my divorce from her mother when she was four. We were very close when I had to move out. I also made some very bad choices in those early years after my divorce when my drinking became a problem. Both my daughter and her younger brother have grounds to be angry about my behavior during that time. Yes, I made mistakes, but I also paid the consequences and turned myself around. I quit drinking 25 years ago and have always been an engaged, supportive, and loving parent. Both my parents were AWOL when I was young, as their parents had been, and I was determined to break that chain, and I did. My daughter has been casually hurtful in the past in ways that seem deliberate, and I think she may be doing so again. Two of her short stories were recently published in a prestigious literary magazine. She emailed me the stories a few days ago. Using a pen name, she falsely depicts me as an indifferent, uncaring, completely absent father. I'm not a character in the story, but my absence is a major element. It's brilliantly done, but it leaves a false impression of me as a deadbeat, and it's completely unfair. I'm thrilled and immensely proud of my daughter for getting published and have told her so, but I'm deeply hurt. I hate to make it all about me, but did she depict me as a disengaged dad intending to be hurtful? What other conclusion is there? Asking my daughter not to take creative liberties when writing about me is just part of my problem. My bigger problem is how to process my anger in a way that keeps the door open to a healthier relationship down the road. I really don't know how to talk to my daughter about this. Signed, Feeling Shafted. Dear Feeling Shafted, the short answer, you don't. You don't tell her what to write. You also don't assume she's writing about you. And you don't assume how she feels about what she writes or what she intends you to feel. If you hate to make it all about you, then don't make it all about you. You may reasonably infer she is writing about you, and you may understandably feel hurt. That's not only fine, that's human. What you don't get to do, and still lay claim to being supportive, is expect her to fix your feelings for you. You're the one who deals with those. Alone or with help, that's up to you. But you keep the two emotional paths separate. She's on hers, and her art is part of that. 100% her business and her prerogative. This includes her right to be wrong. You are on yours, and your redemption is part of that. That's it. Your praise for her work is the best case you can make. Speaking of your redemption, the math is funky. If she's 30 now and was 4 when you divorced her mom, then you miscounted the years of either drinking or sobriety. A quibble, maybe, but it reminds me of players who flash the who me pose at the refs after obvious fouls. She paid the consequences of your actions, too, at a formative age. The best way to prop the door open to her trust is to rid yourself of any trace of defensiveness about your past. You did what you did. She feels what she feels. The only way forward starts there. Little Taste of Summer in Winter, O'Malley's Whaleback in Sandwich, by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Sandwich. Bob O'Malley's Whaleback Restaurant has 28 seats, a century of stories, and a $9 fish and chips plate that hasn't seen a price increase in 20 years. It used to be kind of a dive bar. Now I tell everybody it's the cleanest dive bar on Cape Cod said owner Stu Cogsall, who started working at the bar in 1999 when it was still owned by Bob O'Malley. O'Malley died in 2002, and Cogsall set about buying out the two partners who had taken over. Working days as a UPS delivery driver and nights at the Whaleback, Cogsall bought the place in 2017 and put fried fish on a menu that had been primarily hot dogs and hamburgers. It's still a small menu that fits on a 5x7 laminated card and includes several fried items with fish purchased fresh from local companies, including Superior Lobster and Seafood and Sandwich, Southeast Shellfish and Wareham, and Ocean Fresh in Sagamore. My favorite is the buffalo shrimp over coleslaw. That one's just off the hook, said Cogsall, who works behind the Whaleback Bar Wednesdays and Saturdays with his wife, Tina. The Whaleback offers an $18 lobster roll with chips and a 16-ounce soda, and a $22 fisherman's platter with shrimp, scallops, whole clams, and fish fillet, priced about half of other restaurants. It's a little taste of summer in the winter, Cogsall said of the fried fish. If you have 50 things on your menu, you don't know what people will want to eat. I don't want to ever throw anything away, so I just make sure it's cheap enough so I sell everything. Jake Sillins, executive chef at the Bistro and Wine Bar at Mirbo in Plymouth, found himself passing O'Malley's Whale back on his way home to Barnstable. The restaurant is in what looks like a ranch house set back from the road, with a 35-seat patio off to one side. It's located at 1052 Old Sandwich Road, listed as 1052 Main Street in some GPS systems, or even seen as an extension of the Cranberry Highway. The whaleback is at the point where the road forks, with the left branch leading to the Sagamore Bridge and the right to the Bourne Bridge. I kept seeing all these cars there, Sillins said. I went in and the bartender was Stu, hanging out with his Hawaiian shirt on. He's so outgoing talking to everyone. It was kind of like this little hidden gem, this little hole in the wall. Sillins said he admires Cogsall for his commitment to remaining a small business that sells good, simple food by buying the best and doing as little to it as possible. He's not trying to sell out. He's running it with his family and his friends. It's a pretty cool place, Zillin said. I don't feel like there's a lot of places like that in the world anymore. Cogsall said the Whaleback increased its takeout business during the pandemic when the tiny place was limited for weeks to seven patrons inside at a time. On a recent Friday visit, a steady stream of customers mostly locals, the bartender said, came in to collect takeout they'd ordered ahead. It's like the TV show Cheers, where everybody knows your name, said Ron Backnick Jr., whose father started the Whaleback with O'Malley in 1975. The men, who were brothers-in-law, also owned Whaleback Hills Cottages, formerly Taylor's Motor Court, on Route 6A in East Sandwich. Backnick remembers growing up playing ball in the lot behind O'Malley's Whaleback, a pilot who recently moved back to East Falmouth because of its residential air park, Backnick said he's looking forward to becoming a regular at O'Malley's and enjoying the restaurant as an adult. Things look a little different than they did when Backnick's father and uncle ran the place in the 70s. Last year, Cogswell renovated the whale well back, doing away with the tables and adding a historic bar of polished wood that weighs nearly a ton. It had to be taken apart to get through the door. That bar came out of the Admiral's Club at Logan Airport, Cogsall said. It was the American Airlines Traveler's Club in the 50s. The guy I bought it from in New Hampshire said there's a photo of Jack Kennedy and Peter Lawford drinking at that bar. I'd love to get that photo and hang it over the bar. Cogsall said the main complaint before the renovation was that there were not enough seats at the bar. Now the bar dominates the tiny building. There's also a rail around the outside of the room to provide more seating. In a touch of modernity, hanging off the wall is a digital jukebox with 40,000 songs that people can buy and play using their phones. Was Bob O'Malley's Whaleback ever known as the Orange Ladder? It was, and before that, Jean's Fine Foods. Initially, it was the Sagamore Hotel. Warren G Harding and Calvin Coolidge slept there when they were in office cogsall reported of the presidents but it burned down but it burned down in 1931 and the family who owned it rebuilt it using scrap wood in the height of the depression the whaleback catered to workers at canal generating plant in the 60s and the harpoon they dropped off with the name of their union is still in the basement The Murphy bed where Backnick's Uncle Bob O'Malley would nap in the kitchen between lunch and dinner rushes is gone, though. Asked if he ever planned to change the name of Bob O'Malley's Whaleback, Cogsall said, I adored the man, so as far as I'm concerned, it's Bob O'Malley's Whaleback. I'm only steering the ship while he's gone. Six Romantic Restaurants for Valentine's Day Dinner on Cape Cod by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. As Cupid dusts off his bow and arrows, it's time to start planning your Valentine's Day on Cape Cod. If you already have a valentine, now's the time to pick a time and a date, since not everyone can celebrate the holiday in the middle of the work week and look for a nice place to eat or an activity to do. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it should show the love for whoever your valentine may be. If you don't have a valentine, celebrate Galentine's Day or Self-Love Day instead. For the sake of this piece, I'm going to assume you're all looking for a place to eat. Here are a few places to show some love through food on Cape Cod this Valentine's Day. Lovebirds and co-owners of the Pheasant and Dunn Sons in Dennis and Yarmouthport, Erica and Adam Dunn, are hosting three Valentine's Day events suitable for a valentine or galentine. Festivities begin with Dunn & Sons' weekly free wine tasting from noon to four on February 10th. While specific details are still being sorted, Dunn said she expects the tasting to be Valentine's Day themed. I'm sure we'll have some wines at the tasting that are perfect Valentine's Day gifts, or things to pair with a meal that you're preparing at home for Valentine's Day, she said. Then on February 11th, join Adam for a Valentine's oyster shucking and tasting class paired with bubbles, beer, snacks, and a souvenir pheasant shucking knife. It's a really good thing to do with a partner or just friends, said Erica Dunn, co-owner of the Pheasant and Dunn & Sons. If you're not coupled, it's a great thing to just do by yourself. You don't have to do this with someone else. But if shucking an aphrodisiac isn't romantic enough, Join Dunn & Sons and the pheasant for a fireside fried chicken and grower champagne Valentine's Day dinner, prepared by chef and sommelier Derek Salkin and poured by sommelier Kim Procotion. It's just fun and celebratory, Dunn said. It's fun not taking ourselves too seriously and just doing it really well. Valentine's Day is the same thing. It doesn't have to be so stuffy, traditional or a special date night. It's just a great opportunity to get together with people you love, whether it be your partner, friends, or family. Sample menu items include a bucket of fried chicken. Is there a more delicious key to the heart? Local oysters and chocolate halva with sesame ice cream paired with grower champagne. It's not just your average fried chicken, Dunn said. This is a beautifully elevated dinner, and it's all grower champagne, which means it's small production, low intervention. So there's a real educational component to that as well. Valentine's Day dinner is $1.95 per person and begins at 7 p.m. on February 14th. Reservations can be made at the website of Pheasant Cape Cod. Tickets for oyster shucking are $95 per person and can be purchased online at the same website. Enjoy the Yarmouth Health classics in front of the yellow wheel. Stare into the eyes of your beloved or into the eyes of Annabelle the Stuffed Orangutan. Who am I to judge? Over Valentine's Day dinner at the Yarmouth House. Featuring a trimmed down menu full of classic dishes, the Yarmouth House's Valentine's Day dinner aims to provide guests with a nice meal in a restaurant beloved by the community. Valentine's Day is always kind of big and special here, said Eric White vice president of operations and events and marketing director for restaurants on Main. It's one of our biggest days. Yarmouth House in general is a special place. This year's menu features a mix of surf and turf, offering pan-seared scallops, oysters on the half shell, lamb osso bucco and filet mignon and a half lobster, plus a selection of special desserts. We usually run some dessert specials unique to Valentine's Day," White said. The menu's kind of geared toward couples. In a place where couples choose to go on dates, get engaged, and sometimes even married, White said the romance of the Yarmouth House lives in its history, decor, and layout. Everybody kind of looks at Yarmouth House on special occasions, he said. We have a bunch of different Valentine's decorations. It makes for a special feeling when you come in here. The way the restaurant is set up, it's all kind of cozy seating wherever you are. Valentine's Day dinner will be served at Yarmouth House from 3 to 9 p.m. on February 14th, and reservations can be made online at the Yarmouth House website. They're located on Route 28 in West Yarmouth. Find a quiet corner in the Ross Common Room at Ocean Edge in Brewster. Cozy up in the dark wood-paneled Ross Common Room at the mansion at Ocean Edge for a romantic, price-fixed Valentine's Day dinner for two from February 10th to February 14th. Dinner is $120 per person, featuring four courses, appetizer, salad, entree, and dessert, a champagne toast, and menu items such as lobster pot pie and duck confit vol au vent a small hollow puff pastry. Reservations can be made online at the Ocean Ed's website, and they're located on Main Street in Brewster. Celebrate with a partner or friends at the Sagamore Inn. The Sagamore Inn is making Valentine's Day fit for Valentine's and Galentine's with a special menu dinner on February 14th. The menu, which is still being finalized at the time of this article, features dishes like the Sagamore Inn signature surf and turf, grilled marinated steak tips with butter-poached lobster tail, confit pearl onions, roasted broccolini and mashed potatoes, and a special chef's choice dessert. It's quaint and comforting, Diana Morgan, marketing manager for the Sagamore Inn, said. The food is delicious. Beyond the food, Morgan said the restaurant's charm also comes from the atmosphere created by owners Michael and Suzanne Bilodeau, son and chef Peter Billado, and longtime staff members and rich history. One of the main draws is that it's historic, she said. It's family-owned. The Sagamore Inn is located on Sandwich Road in Sagamore. For reservations, call the restaurant. And finally, if you're looking for an out-of-the-box Valentine's dinner date idea or an excuse to celebrate the holiday with friends, why not glide through the night over a five-course meal on Cape Cod Central Railroad's Valentine's Day dinner train? The train departs from Buzzards Bay at 6 p.m. on Valentine's Day for a three-hour ride through the Cape Cod night. Dinner includes a seasonal crudité, soup, salad, entree, and dessert. A full cash bar is available as well. Seating is still available in two classes, first and premium. First class tickets are $95 per person and premium are $130 and includes seating on the upper level of a dome car with panoramic views. For reservations or more information, call the website of capetrain.com. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.